right now I'm being challenged like I've never been challenged to go from founder to CEO to you know having it all in my head to having a team in place that continues that growth. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In this episode, my guest, Robert Ritzen-Taylor, shares his journey from being a young entrepreneur to becoming the president and CEO of REM Capital. He discusses the ups and downs of starting a hedge fund during the dot-com bubble and the lessons he learned from that experience. Robert also shares how he transitioned into the real estate industry and his role as an asset manager. He highlights the importance of transparency, taking personal responsibility, and being willing to learn and adapt. Welcome back to In the Thick of It. Thanks so much for joining us on In the Thick of It. I always like to start off with just kind of some background. So tell us, you know, where'd you grow up? What was it like as a child for you? Well, not too far from where you guys are in Plano, Texas. That was my stomping grounds. My dad was a home builder, so built a lot of houses in that area. And then uh, moved up to Fairview, which is just north of Allen. You guys, I'm sure know that. But uh, up to Fairview, and we were, I don't know, I forget what it was. I think it was in high school, something like that. Try to get out of the metropolis that had turned into Plano. <laughs> so, because then we moved down. Uh, my dad was from Chicago. My mom was from San Francisco. So we had lived in Chicago, outside of Chicago. That's where I was born. And moved down here because the economy was growing. And, you know, Dallas is a great market, still is. A lot of things happening there, but uh, you know, it changed a lot over the 15 years that we lived in Plano. So we decided to get out, move to the country, which is no longer the country anymore. <laughs> no, it's not. So that that was kind of my upbringing was great. Had a lot of time on the construction site with my dad. Learned a lot about the business, which ties into where I'm at today. Of course, learned a lot about how to run a business, how to run it the right way, how to treat people well, how to uh, you know pay your bills on time, all that kind of good stuff. And I joke about it today that one of my jobs was to every Friday, I'd take the big stack of checks, I'd stuff them in the envelope, and I'd take them out to the little box on the side of the mailbox where all the, the subs would come pick up their check every Friday. It was like, you know, clockwork every Friday. <laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of learn some of those things when you're young and it sticks with you surprisingly as you get older. But So you would put checks in a place and the subs would come and pick them up? Yeah. Yep. Because they're, you know, with, was, in construction, it's like you want to get paid every Friday and you get your check every Friday. And if you do that, you build loyalty because people know they're going to get paid. And it's just, you know, it's part of the business when you're dealing with small subs like that. They don't have float. So, well, I'm more fascinated by the fact, like, did you say you like put it in a box and they just came and selected their own check out of the pile? Yeah. 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 No way. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever have a problem where somebody like took the wrong check either accidentally or on purpose? Not that I know of. And to your point, I thought about that today. And I'm like, huh, I guess it was a little bit more trustworthy back then. Because I don't know if I do that today. (laughs) (laughs) No way would I do that. It's interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine who's a GC today. And I think he operates in San Antonio. I have to remember who it was that I was talking to. Anyway, somehow the conversation came up and he was laughing. He's like, dude, I have exactly the same thing on the side of my mailbox. I built a little box and I put my checks in there every Friday. The subs come by and I'm like, Whoa, I thought we I thought my dad was the only one. <laughs> oh my gosh. That oh wow. I <laughs> it's uh, you are very trusting. Cool. Well, yeah, you know, but I mean I think at the end of the day, obviously 
the subs also, you know, I mean, they're not trying to screw each other and they look through and say, okay, there's my check. And I pull my check out, you know, you go with it. I think today, at least in our business, everything's ACH. We don't have any paper checks. So it's more of a check your bank account. Money's there. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, so talk about some other aspects of, you know, growing up school wise, did you go to public school, private school? Were you a good student? Were you a great student? Were you an okay student? Yeah, well, I had a very interesting educational journey, shall we say. When I was six, my parents were about ready to put me in kindergarten. They're thinking, oh, you know, follow the standard path. And my dad read a book by, I think the guy's name was Waylon Moore. Anyway, he was an educator, teacher, long time, whatever. And he had written a book called Homegrown Kids. So my dad read it and he's like, huh, kind of interesting. Talked about how kids really aren't ready to go to school when they're six and seven and that it's better for them to stay home and learn from their parents. And so, you know, talked to my mom about, they said, all right, well, you know what, let's try it out. Let's try it for a year and we'll see what happens. So didn't go into school, spent a lot of time with my dad, kind of, you know, learning on the job, spent some time with my mom, taught me a little bit about how to read, you know, nothing super formal, honestly, went well, did it again the next year. Went well again, did it again the next year. (laughs) By about the third year, I remember, you know, obviously I, you know, we went to church, so I had friends that I knew, whatever. I said, hey, do I need books? You know, we just going to roll with it? And they're like, yeah, sure. Okay. Here's a catalog. Go order some books. So I sat down. I said, all right, I want to do math. I want to do English. I want to do this. So ordered my books and there you go. That was third grade. (laughs) Wow. A little wow. different than, uh, you know, I would say most people's educational experience was. But, you know, obviously at the time I had no idea. I didn't know any different. You know, I thought, well, yeah, some people go to school, some people don't. Okay, cool. <laughs> so in third grade, you set your own curriculum. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I'm sure my parents were involved to some degree. But for me in particular, and I had four sisters that came after me and it was a little bit more structured with them. But I've always been a very kind of self-driven, self-organized, self-motivated, you know, that's just my personality. And so I think it was kind of like, all right, great. Well, here's the gist of it. Go figure it out. <laughs> so that wow. was pretty much how we so, got rolling. So did you homeschool all the way through high school? Well, so yeah, so that's where things, you know, kind of got interesting. So I kind of started with some books, third grade, fourth, fifth, and actually my mom to some degree, I think, looking back, and I didn't even really realize this when I was younger, but I, I feel like my mom probably had, actually both my parents, honestly, they probably had the biggest influence in me in the area of writing and how to write and how to clearly communicate. And it's interesting because today, one of the things that I do with REM is I have a weekly CEO blog. And I am blown away by the feedback that I get from people that read it. And they say, Robert, we read all kinds of blogs. We read all kinds of updates from all kinds of people. And you're literally on that one or two short list that we read every single week. Honestly, I don't think that my information is so earth shattering or so amazing. I really credit it to just being able to communicate and write clearly, succinctly, cut out the nonsense. Don't make it too formal. Don't make it too stupid. <laughs> you know. And I think I really learned that in those early years at home, you know, I'd write some papers, book reports, et cetera, et cetera. And I never forget, you know, my mom and dad would come back. They're like, nah, that's no good. That doesn't make sense. And I remember thinking, golly, what the heck? (laughs) What do I have to do to get this right? right?" (laughs) 
but you know, they, great and hard. they did, but it was good. And so it was kind of an interesting, different approach. So anyway, so I did that third, fourth, fifth, went into a private school in sixth grade. It was a smaller private school. And I remember being just ridiculously bored. And, you know, I told my parents, I'm like, this is just a complete waste of time. I'm sitting here in a classroom for, you know, six hours a day. It takes me 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to do all the work. And then the other, you know, five and a half hours, I'm just, what am I here for? I could have been out having some fun. <laughs> you know? Right. Or working on the job or, you know what I mean? I, I don't remember all the things that I used to do, but I mean, my dad would pay me for working on the job, you know, sweep job sites or whatever. And I loved it. So I did that in, in that was sixth grade. And then they put me into public school in seventh grade. So that was my first sort of foray into the insanity of public school. And it was pretty insane. But, you know, it's like, all right, you got to kind of, you know, get used to the crazy atmosphere of life at some point or another. <laughs> so did that was for that, a couple of years. Was that a, was that a better experience for you than the private school was? I think it was about the same. There were more challenges. There were more opportunities. There were things that I couldn't do in the private school that I felt like I could do in the public school. The private school was a little bit, you know, there was a lot of, I don't know, just a very small group. It was, and it was a small private school too, you know. So public school, obviously, there's hundreds of people, lots of stuff going on. So that was the good part. The bad part, of course, is that you had a lot of just garbage as you do in a public school from, you know, kids doing stupid stuff to people that are just completely mean and ugly and nasty and, you know, and it's middle school. So <laughs> that's just... I have a seventh grader and we hear about it every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I did that seventh, eighth and ninth, went to high school. And then by ninth grade, kind of in the same situation, I was back to just being frustrated, bored. This is just ridiculous. You know, I'm not learning as much as I'd like to. So I actually went to my parents and said, hey, I'd like to pull myself out. But, you know, obviously I, I need your blessing or permission. They said, okay, well, you know, we don't necessarily think that you should or shouldn't. So if you feel like that's for you, sure. So I actually pulled myself out, taught myself sophomore year. I needed one tutor in math because that was the only thing I was kind of struggling with some things, but taught myself sophomore year. And then it was interesting, kind of had a little bit of a reset and then felt like, okay, you know what? I'm ready to go back in for my junior year. I also felt like some of the classes, again, probably were in a better situation. And during that sophomore year, ironically enough, I actually built some friendships with some people that, you know, to some degree that helps you, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, I may not be getting the most education, but I also appreciate the relationships that I have with my fellow, you know, students. And that's actually where Nathan and I, which, you know, he works for you guys now, he and I kind of, you know, developed a better relationship. I mean, we'd known each other since junior high school. But we kind of spent a little bit more time and I thought, okay, well, you know what? Friends are good. Let's, let's go back to school. So we did. And junior, actually, my junior year in high school was great. Loved it. Got a lot done. Learned a lot. I felt like it was a very useful year. And then during my junior year, my dad felt like, so he'd been running this home building business for a long time, kind of slowed down. He had actually built a couple of different cool products, gotten some patents and was thinking about, you know, developing these patents into something, some sort of a business, sold some stuff to Sharper Image and Lan I forget the other No way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I got to know, what did he say? Like, I can remember as a kid digging through the Sharper Image catalog and being like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's so cool. What was it? Were they, yeah, I guess I should say. 
Yeah, I mean, it was nothing particularly super complicated, but he had developed a couple of products. One was a actually a bike lift that would is a spring tension bike lift, and so you could actually put your bike on it, and with two fingers, like a kid, could lift their bike up the wall without a problem. And so it's kind of a cool, you know, he was just trying to solve a problem in our garage where it's like, you know, we had five of us bikes all over the place, like ah, I get these out of the way, but you know, my kids can't lift a, you know, 80 pound bike, or I don't know what they weigh, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so I just remember him tinkering with it. And he's like, yeah, you know what, might be able to sell this. So he developed that and sold it. And then he also had a kind of a stationary bike rack that had these arms that folded in. So they were completely flat against the wall when you weren't using it, you know, you could walk by and then when you need it, you pulled it back out. So again, you kind of look at it and you're like, well, that's a duh, but as we all know, who've tried to invent anything, it's not a duh. <laughs> you know? So anyway. It's amazing when you try to solve a problem for yourself, how many problems you might solve for other people. Yeah. We've got another guest who has developed a, a really unique way for people to change their oil at home without a mess. Mm. And, ah. it, and it came out of him tinkering with his his own car and didn't want to deal with all this. And right. now it's turned into an incredible business. So no kidding. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So entrepreneurship has kind of been a part of your life since you were a child, you grew up around yeah. it, you exposed it. Yeah. Is that kind of yeah. what launched you into going off on your own? Kind of, kind of. And just to add to that a little bit, my grandfather who grew up in Chicago for the most part, he was an electrician, had a top dance band in the 40s, <laughs> owned a chain of restaurants throughout the Midwest, and owned a road building company at one point. So, I mean, this guy was all over the place. <laughs> no joke. Wow. And my dad actually managed for a short period of time, uh, for a time period, my dad actually managed the restaurants for him. And they had a plane and they were flying all over the place. And, you know, so... Yeah, we have a little bit of a, you know, entrepreneurial vein, I guess. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. Running at the education. So it sounds like you finished out at a public high school. And then did you, yes. did you go so, to college from there? Well, yeah. So getting back to that. So again, the story takes another turn. So my dad had kind of gotten to a point where he's like, hey, you know, I've, I've done this. I've done that. I've been successful. It's great. You know, I can keep doing what I'm doing, but maybe there's more. And he really felt the call to do something in, in terms of giving back and doing charity work, mission work, whatever. And so he decided, you know what, we're going to sell everything. We're going to shut it all down and decided to move the entire family over to Germany, where we were going to be based at an international school, you know, have kind of as a launching point for us to be in school, but then also to be able to do some mission work throughout, you know, Eastern Germany, Poland, Croatia, Bosnia, et cetera, et cetera. So my senior year was in Germany at an international school. <laughs> so, wow. Talking about another, you know, total change. Like, you know, it's funny because, you know, looking back, I'm like, well, I can see why I was, I was a little bit, I don't know if I would say bitter, but, you know, it's like, you don't really know what's going on. I'm like, well, I lost my job, my car, my friends, you know, all this stuff, whatever. I mean, at the same time, you think about what I gained, which was the experience of living in Germany going to school internationally, meeting a lot of cool people, seeing Europe. I mean, gee whiz, how often do you get to do that? <laughs> so, Frequency um, Deutsch? Well, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. So when I lived there, I was barely okay. I actually took 
four or five years of French because my mom is fluent in both German and French. That was her major in college. But you don't use it, forget it. You lose it. <laughs> so I speak I, basically I no German now, you know. I uh, I took, I don't know, three years of Spanish in, in high school. And you're absolutely right. If you uh, <laughs> use it or lose it. And right. um, I can navigate the menu at my local Mexican restaurant, but that's about it. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But one thing I, I was going to add to that, too, just kind of part of this educational experience for me, during that year when we were over there in Germany, that was kind of in the middle of the whole civil war that was going on in Yugoslavia, if you may remember. And, you know, NATO was involved and all this other stuff. Anyway, so that Christmas, we actually took a bunch of shoeboxes, which Samaritan's Purse puts together. You may be familiar. They still do it today. Yeah. Now, all over the world. And so we took a truckload of shoeboxes and we distributed it to kids in war-torn parts of Croatia and Bosnia. And again, you know, just being able to have that experience as part of just life education. I mean, I'll never forget that driving through the streets and seeing, you know, the bullet marks all over the buildings and the schools and everything else. And I mean, looking at Ukraine today, it's like flashbacks to driving through those cities. And then, you know, what people are experiencing and it's the same crazy nonsense. But, uh, you know, it's just, it was a neat experience to be able to do that and to give back. And so, yeah, finished that year, came back to the States, got a full scholarship to a school up in Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon for electrical and mechanical engineering. And that was kind of what I was planning to do, do a double major in engineering and got started there. And Carnegie Mellon's a great school. And I was used to being, you know, top of my class without working very hard. And you go to Carnegie Mellon and everybody's top of their class without working very hard. And so it was a bit of a, you know, a humbling experience. <laughs> was it competitive? A very competitive. Yeah. I mean, extremely competitive. And, and you know, it's one of those things where I, I remember walking into my one of my first classes, which is my electrical engineering class. They're like, OK, well, we're going to build a robot this semester. And I'm thinking, wait, I thought I came here for you to teach me how to build a robot. Like, no, nah, you're going to build a robot. <laughs> so, Figure it out. Exactly. So I built my robot that semester. And, you know, you come in at the end of the semester and everybody's got their robot. And I was probably in the bottom quartile somewhere, you know, not the bottom, but I definitely wasn't. I was below halfway in that, you know, if you looked at all the robots that people built. And I just remember thinking, I'm like, yeah, hmm, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I could have stuck it out and I'm sure I would have been fine. And, you know, again, I mean, Carnegie Mellon turns out a lot of really top-notch folks, but fantastic uh, school. it's a good school. But I think, you know, it's one of those things where I thought, well, you know, maybe there's something else that I could do where I'm really good. I'm sort of in the back of that top quartile versus the bottom quartile. So I switched to finance and business and it was kind of like the lights just came on to some degree. And really the only negative thing for me was that I lost my scholarship because my scholarship was for engineering. And so I lost my scholarship, made a switch to Liberty University, which is in Virginia, and finished out my education there, got my degree. And that was great. You know, Liberty obviously isn't, well, at least it wasn't back then. I think now the educational side is a little bit more of a sturdy, if you will. At the time, it was, you know, it's a good school, but nothing fancy per se. But I think it was also good for me to just spend, again, a little bit more time on the relational side of life because I tend to be very, perform, you know, hardworking, performance, get stuff done, you know, and uh, I think sometimes a good balance is important in life. So finished out there and then, you know, went to New York, didn't have a job, 
And, uh, you know, just kind of one of those guys, same thing. I was like, well, I'm driving to New York. I'm going to find a place to live and we're going to make it happen. <laughs> so. so you did the actual, like, I don't have an apartment. I don't have a place to stay. Yep. I've got a suitcase and the clothes on my back and I'm just going to get there and figure it out when I land in Manhattan. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. That's the Frank That's... Sinatra song, right? It's like, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> right. So what was that process like? How did you, what was day one? You set foot in New York. What was the first thing you did? Well, I, you know, again, just because I had kind of grown up in the church, I kind of, that was my networking point. You know, some people it's bars and friends and whatever, you know, there wasn't really Facebook per se back then. So I connected with a really large church in the city, Redeemer Presbyterian. They're still going. There's huge, huge church up there. Tim Keller's pastor, great guy. Um, so I just connected with them and they had a big, kind of like a posting board, you know, people that were looking for roommates and whatnot, made some phone calls and found a roommate, got moved in, cheap rent, middle of Brooklyn, total ghetto. But, you know, I mean, when you're living on a dream, who cares? Like, let's do it. <laughs> so did you find that roommate the first day you were there or were you like in a hotel for I a week or two while you were figuring that out? Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, I actually drove up there for like a a week. I knew a friend who had a friend that somebody had an apartment that they weren't going to be at for a few days or something like that. So they let me stay at their apartment. And that was kind of my, you know, launching out point, make some connections, got some phone numbers. And then when I went back, which was, you know, maybe two or three weeks later, I had already made that arrangement with, you know, somebody to stay. So yeah, it was never like, oh, I'm staying in a hotel and I have no idea when I'm moving out. There was some planning involved. And again, you know, it could have been worse. It actually, looking back, I'm like, man, it worked out amazing that I found a place, landed. I mean, I didn't have a job. So obviously I was kind of at, at the mercy of my savings account. But obviously I knew, hey, it's New York. There's lots of jobs here. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we got the place to live, which is, uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. That's, uh, you know, right? uh, pretty foundational. Yeah. What was the job search like? Well, I connected with recruiters in addition to, you know, kind of doing my own job search. But it was for me, it was kind of like, hey, recruiters are my connection because they're again, I knew that, you know, you got a network. So whether it's with a church, recruiters, whatever job, place to live, et cetera. So I connect with some recruiters and that was kind of my inroads. Got some interviews, got a job with CIBC. They're a pretty big banking investment firm. And uh, I started out as an equity trader right down across the street from the trade center, actually in the financial center, you know, it's still there, but I was right across the street from the trade center. So I, I worked what, as a trader. What year was that? That was back in 99. Yeah. Pre nine 11. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So I did that for a little while and, you know, kind of funny, nobody would give me the time of day because of my resume. They're like, okay, you were engineering Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, okay, Carnegie Mellon, but you were engineering. You weren't finance. And then you went to Liberty, and we don't know anything about Liberty. <laughs> so nobody would give me the time of day. And I remember going into an interview with Lehman. And Lehman, you know, back then was like one of the top, Bear Stearns, Lehman. I mean, these guys were the top of the top. And I remember going to the interview, and the lady looked at my resume, and she said something to the effect of, she's like, I don't even know how you got in here you don't even have an Ivy league. Like there's no way you'd ever make it at Lehman. <laughs> and, wow. You know, it's kind of interesting because I'd never experienced that kind of discrimination or, you know, just that level of 
whatever you want to call it. You know, I grew up in a nice neighborhood, good people, you know, everybody kind of viewed each other as equal. I mean, I never experienced that. And so it's probably good for me to say, wow, okay, so people actually treat other people this way. I'm shocked. This is horrible. I can't believe it. And of course, you know, I walked out of there thinking, whatever, you guys have no idea what you're missing. See ya. <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward, whatever it was, nine years later, when Lehman filed bankruptcy, I thought, well, you know what? Good riddance, you jerk. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was an interesting process. And so, you know, I, when I took that job as an equity trader, and that was not at all at what I would say was my capability level. And I was bored. And so I didn't really last very long. And I was, you know, trying to do other things and trying to do something else and move up. And everybody's like, nah, nah you got to do this for two, three, four, five years. That I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to make that. That's just not me. So I left there and started a hedge fund, my own hedge fund, and said, you know what? I could do this myself. I've been investing since I was 12 years old. I'll start my own hedge fund. Great. And so I did and did great. And until, how old were you at that point? Well, 20, well, I don't know. How old are you when you graduate college? 22, 21, 22, 22. maybe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I remember, you know, hired a guy to put it together for me and set it up with the whole, you know, 400 page PPM and got the Delaware filing and had to go down to the, the I don't know where I find, you know, all that stuff. I mean, back then I was like, whoa, what is all this stuff? Now we do it every day, like the back of our hand. <laughs> you know? Right. But, uh, got it all set up, talked to some people that I knew and said, Hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's my track record. And, uh, would love to, you know, take your investment and try to make some money for you. And so, so things went pretty you're, good. You're 22, maybe 23 years old. Yeah. And you're, you're asking people to trust you with large sums of money, expecting yeah. a big return. Right. How, yeah. what were those first couple of conversations like? <laughs> You know, I don't remember 100%, but I do remember, you know, I, I'd obviously done some work to do a little bit of marketing material, kind of show people, hey, I, here's what I've done with my money and here's what it looks like. And I put together a nice brochure and spent some time working on that. But, you know, I, I think for the most part, and again, it's been a while, but I think for the most part, I just said, hey, I'm just going to be genuine and tell people, hey, I really believe in this. Here's why I think it makes sense. Here's the opportunity that I see. The part that I did not understand at that time was the risk that I was taking. So for me, it was just, hey, this makes 100% sense. I believe in 100%. I've got all my money in it. I've done well. Come on and join me. I had no idea about the risk that I was taking. And that was the big, you know, that was the growth moment for me. And part of the reason that where we're at today versus where I was 20 some years ago is just, you know, a better understanding of risk. <laughs> so, you know, and, and again, you know, when you're young, you don't think about those things. And the world seems like it's rather everything works. So great. The money's coming in. And I had some connections with companies that were pre IPO technology companies. So, you know, back in before the crash of 2000, if you could get in with a pre IPO technology company, I mean, you were making money. Hand over head. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember one day sitting in my office there right on Wall Street, I'd rented a little office you know, it wasn't anything fancy, but it was on Wall Street and uh, sitting there and made him half a million dollars in one day. And I thought, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Life is going to be great. <laughs> so, you know, 
And it's funny because now I, you know, I look at like the most recent thing with this guy, Sam Bankman Fried, or have you say his last name in FTX. And I just think, you know, these people have no, literally no clue what's going on. They're completely naive to the risks of the financial market. And, you know, it's sad because in that case, you're talking billions and billions of dollars of money that was just blown away for no reason. Yeah, evaporated. So anyway, not to distract, but it's kind of funny just thinking about my history. And so in one way, I was fortunate in the sense that I raised some money, not a lot, not as much as I wanted to. But I thought, you know what? Hey, modest beginning. This is a long game. I'm here for you know 30 years. I'm going to hone my craft. I'm going to do really good at this. And so that was okay. And then uh, March of 2000, when the crash started with the technology shares, that's when the whole thing started to unravel. Because again, I had zero downside protection. I mean, everything was going up forever. Why not? (laughs) Right. So so basically, the whole thing fell apart in a fairly short order. And to compress sort of that piece of the story, I returned a chunk of the money to my investors. But then there was obviously a chunk that had gone. There's nothing we could do about it. And so for, I believe most of them, I don't remember because it's been a while, but most of them, I pretty much said, hey, listen, I'm sorry. I didn't know that this was going to happen. But at the same time, you trusted me. So I'm going to do the best that I can to pay you back out of pocket over the next you know, 5, 10 years from whatever money I make. So that's all I can do is just you know, try to make it up to you. And so I did. And it was a good learning experience, but I'm glad that I did that. I didn't make them whole. I don't think I made anybody whole because the losses were pretty, pretty significant. But you know, I got people... I probably got them double what they would have gotten had they even invested themselves, you know? And so I thought, well, all right, you know, if they would have invested with anybody, they would have lost a lot of money, but I'm going to get them a lot more than what they would have. And, you know, that makes me feel like I did the right thing. You helped them half their losses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so for instance, let's just say they'd invested a hundred grand and had they just put it into an index fund, they would have been left with 30,000 as an example. I got them back to call it 60 as a reference point. So I thought, well, you know, Hey, we all lost money. We all got completely just. Did you have anybody that was (laughs) upset or ugly or just had a visceral reaction towards you? You know, it was interesting. I really didn't. I really didn't. But I think that was partly because the people that I had talked with, I think they knew more about the risk they were taking, even to some degree than I did. And I think they were like, okay, you know what? Good guy. Like, he's not going to steal our money. And so actually, it's funny. Some of them even said, look, Robert, like, why are you feeling bad about this? If we would have put this money with JP Morgan, they would have lost 80% of our money, you know? (laughs) So I think that transparency and just that willingness to take personal responsibility and treat it like even better than my own money, I think people really appreciated that. And they were like, you know what? Hey, thank you. It's not what we wanted. It's not what we were hoping for. We were hoping to 10x our money in five years. We all were, but that didn't happen. And so, you know, I think that genuineness, that transparency, I didn't try to hide anything. I wasn't like, oh, you know, I wasn't funneling money to my yacht in the Bahamas or some nonsense like that. The funny thing is, I literally never took a penny. I didn't have a fancy apartment. I didn't get a new car, literally nothing. Because again, I viewed it as a long game. So I said, hey, yeah, I made a half a million dollars today, but I could lose it. Now, I didn't think I'd lose that much, but <laughs> you know, 
Right. But I just, I always kept it frugal and I was always careful. And, you know, again, I don't know, maybe, maybe that was partly what helped just to keep my head on straight. And I don't know too many people that come back to their investors and say, by the way, the market crashed. So did we, but I'm going to come out of pocket as much as I can to do you right. I don't think too many people do that in our industry. So, yeah, I think that helps. I myself am a very conflict averse person. I really try to avoid conflict. And you said something that really resonated with me. And that is when you go into a conversation that could potentially be heated, if you do take personal responsibility and you approach it with a sense of ownership and that humility, people tend to respond much more favorably than you would expect them to. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I think if you go into the situation with transparency and openness, then you've established a relationship based on a certain type of communication. And that communication generally carries through. If you go into a relationship establishing it based on numbers, 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 and you miss your numbers, well, I don't have a lot of sympathy for you. You're going to get hammered. And I mean, again, the things that I learned 20 years ago I'm applying today in REM very specifically and very methodically because they work and they work no matter what day and age it is. And that's one of the things that I've continued to push with our folks on the team is, guys, we are not going to become a marketing motivated company. That is not who we are. We are relationship based. And if you can't allow somebody to make a decision to invest with REM because they believe in us, they believe in our product, they believe in our our performance and our track record, we do not want them. If they're calling me asking me, well, can you get to 19%? Because I thought it was 18 to... No, just forget it. That is not a good fit for us. It's just going to lead to chaos, frustration, lawsuits. We don't need it. So, you know, it's funny how some of those early experiences can really shape and give you wisdom for down the road. And that's honestly one of the things I am glad that I didn't succeed when I was 21 and 22. I really am. Now, at the time, I thought it was the end of the world. I'm like, okay, well, life's over. Everything I ever wanted to do, it's done. (laughs) You know? So, but, you know, 60 years of misery of weight. Right. Well, and that's the thing. You don't have that perspective. And I've told a lot of our investors today, I said, hey, I am very glad that it took me 20 years of slogging through a lot of challenges. And, you know, having and adding a, a wife and kids and a family and responsibility and a couple failures along the way before I got to this point where I'm actually now handling hundreds of millions of other people's money, because you need that. You should not be doing that. You should not be that fiduciary without experience. You just, you don't know the downside. You don't know what you're doing. And even for people like me in my shoes that have been at it for 20 years, you can still miss some stuff. So, you know. I'm just a big, a big advocate of the long game, which I was even when I was younger, but I didn't really understand what it meant. (laughs) It's interesting how failure can actually help create credibility just as much as success. Absolutely. Yeah. It's powerful. So so we've got the dot-com crash. I take it that the hedge fund, you closed shop and went on to something else from there. Yeah. Well, and and that's where... What was that next? So that's where things kind of got exciting. So I, because of that, and shutting down the hedge fund and really, you know, thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm in New York, the capital of the world for finance and finance is gone. So now what do we do? And I had a friend of mine 
who knew somebody at a real estate company that was growing. And they basically said, Hey, listen. And I was kind of, you know, I had put the word out, Hey, I need something to do. I need some work. You know, I don't want anything full time. I'm depressed. It's the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I remember, you know, Cambridge was like, Hey, listen, we need somebody to come over here and help do some lease audits. And I was like, I, I've never done a lease audit. I don't know. He's like, Look, you're a smart guy. I know who you are. You'll figure it out. So I, came, I went over there and uh, these guys had just bought a $90 million property, super nice property. And uh, they wanted somebody to just go through and audit the leases for all the, all the residents, the tenants that were there. And so I did. So, you know, okay, we can figure this out. And it took me so about a week. this is multifamily, not commercial. Well, this was actually commercial office space, commercial retail, kind of a mixed use type product that they had bought. And they, they did both multifamily and office, but this was kind of a mixed use project they bought. So I went over there, did the lease audit, and I found $250,000 within about a week. I found about $250,000 that had not been correctly billed on the rent roll. So, you know, gave my report back to whoever it was that I was reporting to. And uh, next week, the partners show up at the property. <laughs> and they were like, okay, who is this guy? <laughs> And so, you know, they kind of asked me some questions about, okay, well, you know, how'd you find it? And what'd you do? What was your process? And I explained the whole thing. And by the end of the conversation, they said, okay, well, we own about a half a billion dollars worth of stuff. We'd like you to come to the corporate office next week and audit every single lease across the entire company. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so, so it's kind of funny. I don't want a full-time job. I just need something yeah. part-time to pay <laughs> audit half a billion dollars worth of assets. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, it was kind of funny, but they, you know, they were good people, good hearted people, you know, obviously business people in New York, you had to be pretty tough, but they were good people. And I thought, well, you know, kind of cool. I get to work with the CEO, like literally out of the gate, kind of cool. So went to New York and started doing some auditing of these different leases and, you know, work with the CFO and the people at the corporate office didn't find nearly the the same dollar amount there was some stuff that we found but it wasn't a lot anyway but in that process got to know you know some of the partners the company and whatnot and that was kind of cool so went back to working on this project they said hey you know what really like what you did we'd like to put you kind of in charge of the accounting side of things and so i started really developing that out putting process and procedures in place getting billing correct whatever you know i didn't have a whole lot of accounting training but again i just kind of a natural ability for doing the accounting. And then it wasn't too long after that, they came to me and said, well, the asset manager, we feel like he's not a good fit. So we're going to promote you to be the asset manager. Now, mind you, this guy had been in the industry for 20, 25 years. He's like my age today, our age today. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think you missed something here. Like I do not have his experience, his knowledge. There's no way. And I just remember one of the partners, he's like, Robert, you're a really sharp guy. You're going to do just fine. <laughs> okay, I'll, I will try to live up to that expectation. <laughs> so, we are pushing you into the deep end and we expect that you're going to, uh, you're going to swim. Yeah. So there I am. I don't know how long it took, maybe a few months. And all of a sudden now I'm the guy running this $90 million asset, never having done it before. But I will say that Again, kind of going back to the education side of things. And one of the reasons that I really like the homeschooling environment, and we actually homeschool our kids too, um, you know, high school is a little bit different, but when they're younger, is I think it really keeps that 
sense of curiosity, that sense of learning, just incredibly strong. And I've always been that way. And so, I mean, I'll jump into anything and just soak it up and, you know, take notes and ask people questions. And yeah, you know, when you do that, granted, I mean, it helps to have a a good mind, which you can't really take credit for that. But I think it is kind of amazing when you combine those two. And so that's kind of what happened with me is that I was jumping into property management and operations and maintenance. And, you know, I was down in the basement with the uh, electrician talking to him about what he was doing. And, you know, I was up trying to negotiate a, a legal clause with, you know, one of the tenants that wanted to renew. I mean, just all over the place doing all this crazy stuff and just absolutely had a blast just right in my wheelhouse. And so, you know, they, over the course of the years, they really gave me more responsibility. I worked on, you know, a, a huge, big billion dollar deal we did in, in Midtown, New York City, worked on a renovation project, downtown Manhattan, worked on some, you know, a whole bunch of multifamily properties, worked on a hotel conversion, just all kinds of cool stuff and really learned a lot about the business, actually helped build out our construction division at that initial asset which was kind of fun too, you know, kind of taking a little bit of my construction background and helping to build that out. So just a lot of cool stuff. And I am super appreciative for their mentorship in the business because I wouldn't be here today. And so I did that for a while. And then at some point, I kind of felt like, you know, I was going to be in New York City. But once I found somebody that I was ready to get married with and have kids, I was going to move out of the city. And so met my wife and kind of started planning that exit from New York City. And I remember the partners were like, you're not going anywhere. Why would you walk away from this? That's crazy. Like, we're ready to make you a partner at some point. (laughs) And, you know, again, it's kind of like Carnegie Mellon. I could have stayed. I could have done it. It would have been fine. But at the time, I was like, no, I'm moving out of New York. I'm going to move somewhere else, start a family, and it's okay. And I think, you know, looking back, I probably would have been giving myself the advice like, dude, you're nuts. You don't give this up. This is something you hang on to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And how old are you at this point? What year is this? This would have been back 2005 or six. So I don't know, 27, 28, I guess, when we got married right yeah. around there. So, yeah, you know, and again, I guess just that entrepreneurial spirit where you're like, eh, whatever, I'll start over. It'll be fine. <laughs> so if you're talking 05, 06, that was still a few years before the whole mortgage collapse happened. Yeah. But- you right. talked about Bear Stearns and Lehman already. Yeah. Did that firm have any trouble in that period or were they really not affected by the mortgage crisis? No, not at that point. I mean, everybody was just going gangbusters back at that point in time. And, you know, the real estate business was doing good for the most part. We were actually getting pension fund money from Germany at, I don't remember what the rate was, but it was just like dirt cheap at the time. Crazy. And so again, kind of like what we saw over the last, you know, five to 10 years with the really low interest rates, particularly, you know, call it the last year and a half when the rates were so low. I mean, it's like free money. So, I mean, you hand out free money, people are going to borrow it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) But yes, I mean, there wasn't really too much of that going on. I think a lot of people were lulled into this sort of thinking that everything was collateralized properly when really it wasn't. And I even remember, again, looking back on some of the deals that I did in New York City, and the leverage that we had was crazy high. I mean, just crazy. I wouldn't do that today. 
And again, maybe if I was back then today, maybe I would. But like, if you asked me today, would you do that? Absolutely not. Like, that's just insane. <laughs> now, yeah. does it mean that our returns were crazy good? Yeah. I mean, I mean, on one property, I believe, if I remember the math, we invested about somewhere between a million and two million bucks and made 30. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> you know? but, but the risk was extremely high. Exactly. That's my point. So you know, what the type of shop we run today is completely different. And that's okay. Again, it's more of a long game. We're going to invest 10 million to make 10 over five years, as an example. And that's a really good return. I mean, if you can double your money in five years, long term, you're actually doing really well as an investor, you know, as a passive investor who's not involved, you know, it's not a startup, it's not a technology. I mean, that's that's a really solid return. So anyway, but yeah. Well, change. Okay. So oh five, oh six time frame, you meet your wife, you get married, you leave the city. Where'd yeah. you go and what did you do? Yeah. So I looked at all of the kind of what I thought would be the up and coming uh secondary markets, if you will, in the country. So Raleigh, Austin, Tampa. I looked at Atlanta too, even though, you know, it's kind of becoming a it really is a primary market in today's environment. Charlotte. You know, just markets that were dynamic, that were growing, all in the South. So I knew I wanted warmer weather. I was kind of tired of the cold. (laughs) And I ended up landing in Tampa because I like the sunshine. I still thought I might have some involvement in the hedge fund world at some point. I hadn't completely said, nope, I'm done with it. And there there was a growing, and there still is a growing private equity world in Tampa. Just a lot of guys that have you know, they moved to Florida and they want to take their business with them. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity. The housing market was phenomenal in Tampa. So again, kind of had that going for it as well. So I moved down here, took a job with the REIT that was based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. They had about $4 billion in assets under management. And, you know, kind of funny story, same scenario. They looked at my resume and they're like, okay, well, you know, you've done a little bit, but you don't have a CPA. Like, okay, who cares? Well, you know, we don't know if you know anything because you don't have a CPA. All right. I said, why don't you just give me a test? So, you know, they gave me a test and I really think the HR lady thought I was going to fail. And she got the test back. She's like, uh, you didn't miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I bet you wish you could go back to that Bear Stearns or Lehman person and exactly. say, hey, <laughs> what do you think about them apples? It was, it was kind of funny. And so anyway, so long story short is, came on with them and I had a, a great opportunity there. Now, the funny thing is, you know, $4 billion company, after about six months, I was bored to tears because everything was so structured and organized. And I'm like, guys, I could do 10 of these jobs and still squeeze it in 40 hours. So the lady who I took over, who I'm sure was very competent, very good person, they were kind of concerned. They said, hey, she was here for 10 years. She was working 50, 60 hours. She was kind of stressed out. That's why she left. I thought, okay, well, you know, give me a shot. Let's see what happens. So I took over and about six months later, I had it down to 15 hours a week. And I'm like, hey, what do I do now? (laughs) So again, kind of like what I did in New York, I was walking down the hall to talk to the development team. Like, hey, what are you guys doing? What can I help you out? I'm walking down the park. Hey, what can I help you guys out? I'm flying to Raleigh. Hey, can I help the guys in Kansas City? And how about the guys in Nashville? Maybe they need some, maybe, you know, training on there. Anyway, so, you know, kind of bouncing all over the place. And they were kind of at the point where they thought, well, you know, maybe maybe we want to start working people into a future, 
you know, VP finance, CFO role, that kind of thing. And we had a couple conversations about that. And I thought, well, maybe that'd be a good opportunity, but that would have required moving to Raleigh. And again, you know, I said, well, we could do that. But at that point, a lot of my family had actually moved to Tampa from around the country so that we could all kind of re-congregate after spreading all over the world. And so I said, yeah, you know what? I think I'm going to stay in Tampa and uh, this is going to be my home. So I kind of knew that, you know, I probably wasn't really going to go anywhere. And so I left Highwoods and I actually, I thought, well, I did the hedge fund kind of like that. So maybe I'll just buy, look for a business to buy and, you know, do some hedge fund, but more on a bigger scale, kind of like Warren Buffett does. So I partnered with a guy in a completely unrelated business, nothing real estate at all, and dumped a whole bunch of money into it. He ended up embezzling funds. We ended up in court. He bankrupted the business. And so literally in the space of a month, I lost everything. So <laughs> you know, I was like, all right, well, here we go again. You're married. Do you have kids at this point? Yeah. We had one, maybe two at that point. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, I mean, looking back again, I think I would say it was a bad decision to leave Highwoods. It was very stable, very steady. I mean, no stress, just exactly the right place for a guy that wanted to prioritize his family, had a young family, needed to spend time. And so, you know, looking back, it was like, yeah, that was stupid. Yeah, I was bored, but that's exactly where I should have been. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you live and learn. I mean, I will say to some degree, again, the experiences that my wife and I went through, I went through in terms of the business failure and the partnership and all that stuff. I mean, again, we did learn a lot. I don't necessarily advise it to anybody. It was extremely difficult, painful, tough on our marriage. I think we still have baggage that we're working through from you know, 15 years ago sure. on that one. <laughs> but, you know, and, and again, it's like, okay, would I change things if I went back? Absolutely. Am I thankful in one respect for the learning lessons that occurred? Absolutely. Probably wouldn't be here today if it wouldn't have been for that, because those were some tough lessons. And sometimes you got to smack your head a few times before you're ready to, yeah. to really be prepared. So anyway, did that tried to kind of salvage the business, dig my way out. And that was stupid too. That just made it worse. And then uh, it kind of said- you've lost everything at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lost everything. We lost our house, obviously, and just everything. And so- Wow. I said, all right, well, because I, I mean, I'd literally taken everything we had and dumped it in the business. And, you know, again, that's, I think I was still learning this risk reward, uh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I was still too, taking too much risk. But again, you know, it's like, okay, I'd, I'd been recently married, recently had a kid and, you know, you're still kind of operating like, hey, throw everything at the wall and see what happens. And if we have to start over, no big deal. Well, yeah, not so much anymore. <laughs> right. So, wow. It's not a good scenario, but anyway. So what came after that? So, like I said, I, I tried to salvage the business, didn't really work out. And through that, I kind of said, well, I, I really know what to do. I mean, going back to the corporate world is possible, but I mean, for me to try to make back what I've lost, would take forever working in the corporate world. So at that point, I thought, well, you know, I have learned a lot, certainly good and bad. So I'll start up a consulting, you know, my own consulting company. And so I started looking for clients, got some business, working with a few different clients, advising what? them on, you know, business growth, development, investors, just all the stuff that I'd learned, real estate. Some of them had real estate holdings. So I'd, I'd help them with that. And so kind of grew that 
over the years. Nothing big. You know, it wasn't nearly what I thought it was, but you know, it was enough to pay the bills. And that was great. What kind of organizations were you consulting with at that time? They were all, I would call them small and medium-sized businesses, you know, and nothing huge. Broad verticals. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from real estate to manufacturing to financial services to trying to think what else. Yeah. There was a pretty big range. And it was basically, you know, a lot of it was just in the consulting arena. A lot of it is just problem solving. So, you know, the CEO is really busy doesn't necessarily have a COO who's super problem solving, or maybe the CEO is really busy too, or maybe he doesn't have the money to hire. I don't know. And so I would just come in and say, hey, if I'm here for a week, a month, six months, whatever, use me and I'll solve your problems. And I did. And people really appreciate it. In fact, there was one lady that hired me. She had she owned like eight different businesses. And she brought me on. We're still really good friends today. She brought me on and I and about, I don't know, three months in, I said, hey, this business over here is making you nothing and you need to get rid of it. And she looked at me and she's like, no, I can't do that. Like, that's my baby. And I said, well, you need to get rid of it. I'm just telling you, you need to get rid of it. It took me six months of just, you know, patiently telling her, hey, you need to get rid of it. And I'd say, hey, look at the PL, look at this. Six months later, she finally said, okay, fine, I'll get rid of it. To this day, say, Robert, thank you, thank you, thank you for convincing me to get rid of it. <laughs> so, you know, so there, there's some kind of cool experiences through that consulting time period. And while I was doing that, you know, I thought, well, I'll go back and I'll get my master's, I'll get my CPA and, you know, that'll make me smart. Not, but, <laughs> you know, so I did that and that was great. And then um, that was about, I guess, uh, five or six years ago. And I, you know, I was obviously looking for clients, looking for people. And I ended up meeting a former partner of mine who was running several different businesses, same kind of scenario. It's like, hey, come on in. I need a CFO. I need somebody to really help me put all this stuff together. So I started working with him. And I, I think it was maybe three or six months after I started working with him. He said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm about ready to start this podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell people about my experiences in real estate. And I thought, dude, we got work to do over here. I don't know what you think you're smoking, starting some silly podcast. (laughs) Obviously he had the last laugh clearly. And so he started the podcast and it just took off and it was all real estate related. And, you know, so we were obviously talking and he, he, at the beginning, we hadn't talked a whole lot about real estate. It was kind of just, Hey, I'll come in and help you with the business. And so as we started talking more and more, and he realized I had an extensive real estate background, he's like, hey, this could work out pretty well. So I started taking calls from people that were calling him from the podcast, interested in investing with him. We started building out a team, acquisitions, and you know, kind of like putting the business together. And uh, it just, you know, it was, it was uh, in the start, it was a little bit rough, but it was, again, kind of back in that wheelhouse of real estate. So the podcast gave him credibility such that people who were listening were calling him saying, hey, I want you to put my money to work. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which, that's I mean, amazing. that's kind of a, the gist of a podcast is you're a, you are a, a thought leader in that space. And, you know, that's the whole point of doing it. And so, yeah, it, it was kind of a, a interesting transition because then on top of that, he had always wanted to build a coaching program for real estate. And that was kind of his initial, I don't know if it was in his initial thought, but I think that was part of the advice. Say, hey, I got this huge audience. 
So if I can provide coaching services to them and build that out, great, that would be awesome. And to some degree, it's it's a little bit easier from a recurring revenue standpoint. You know, running real estate is complicated. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I actually real helped quick. him to build that out. And, you know, we were flying all over the country and speaking in front of, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, whatever it was. And it was a lot of fun. And at the same time, I was building REM on the back end. And so that's kind of where we are today to some degree. And so are y'all partners in this venture or is REM just you? So we own a bunch of assets together. And about a year and a half, two years ago, I went to him and I said, you know, hey, I am just completely slammed with REM. It's blowing up. And I want to, you know, just focus on that. And, you know, so obviously we kind of had to figure things out. Thankfully, it was it was amicable. Great guy. I mean, again, I kind of learned my lessons on who to work with and who not to work with. <laughs> so, yeah, we we decided to go our separate ways. He started his own real estate company and he's, you know, running it and still doing the coaching and phenomenally successful. Great, just really cool business that he's doing over there. And I'm now focused on REM. That's been my sole focus and, and always will be going forward. So it worked out good. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of assets that we own together because in the beginning we were partnered on all of them. Sure. So, yeah. Before we get too deep into REM, and I definitely want to hear a lot about that. You talked about how you were a consultant to a lot of other businesses and mm. you're giving people advice and oftentimes telling people things that they don't necessarily want to hear. The lady that resisted for six right. months. Have you had people in your life, mentors, coaches, that have kind of helped you navigate your your career? Not really. I would say my dad's probably been the the most influential, but not necessarily from a career standpoint, more from a personal, personal spiritual standpoint, which I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of your core anyway. The guys in New York, I would say from a professional standpoint, were great. They were kind of more of a, hey, let's give you the tools, let you run with it. Here's kind of what we need and go for it. But I I never really had anybody that was super mentorship, if you will. And to some degree, that's been a bit of a hole in my life, if you will. And I think that's part of the reason I've kind of fallen on my face a few times. <laughs> because you know, it's like, we're going 100 miles an hour. Okay, uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But at the same time, and again, who knows, you know, 2020 hindsight, you never know. But I feel like a lot of those experiences are absolutely key to where we are today with REM. Because when I tell somebody, I am not risking our capital, like that's not just me saying that. That is, I am not risking my capital. Now, there's plenty of risk in the business just by stepping out the door every morning and running a business. So that's already there, period. That's one thing for me. It's like, we are not starting over. Okay, World War III, sure, I get it. That's unpredictable. Right. But outside of that, we're not starting over. We're going to take this thing very carefully. And and we've had plenty of bumps along the way just being conservative. But if we wouldn't have been conservative, we wouldn't be here today. It's as simple as that. So, yeah. you know, those principles work. So let's go back to a minute um, to the, the founding or the events that led up to the founding of REM. Yeah. So you'd had the hedge fund in the early 2000s. You had this business partner that embezzled and eventually, you know, lost everything. Your wife obviously lived through one of those situations. And I'm sure she was aware of the earlier situation before you guys had met. So you come home and you say, hey, sweetheart, 
here's what I'm thinking about doing. What is her reaction to that? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because that was definitely a conversation because I think that was also one of the reasons that I did the consulting for a while because she's like, no more partners ever for the rest of your life. Don't even think about it. (laughs) And it was kind of like me saying, hey, working in corporate, I'm going to have to start all over. At least that's the way I felt at the time. Because, you know, by that time it was 2008, nine. I mean, the economy was a mess, blah, blah, whatever. Nobody was hiring. It was just a disaster. And then her saying, you're not doing any partners. I'm like, great. Then I'll just, I'll do consulting. So yeah, we had that conversation and it was, uh, you know, uh, again, it was one of those things where I think she knew that I had changed. So I wasn't the same person that I was 15 years earlier, 10 or whatever. So she knew there were some differences there, but I think she also understood, and I'm appreciative for this. She also understood, Hey, this is partly who you are. You are a risk taker. You are an entrepreneur. And as long as we can try to find a balance here, that's not completely out of whack. Okay. I get it. And so that's been my challenge is to, you know, say, Hey, I really would like to do this. I think this is an opportunity to finally do something that is sustainable. That is, you know, I'm prepared for, but I also have to balance that with my family and the time that it takes there. And that's, that kind of brings us to where we're at today. Cause I basically told us, Hey, you know, normally, when you start a business, you need about five years to get that thing going. And not to say that I'm just going to disappear, but you know, it's, it's going to weigh pretty heavily. And that five years is basically up at the end of this year. <laughs> and so, and there's been some things just recently that kind of blew up and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is crazy. But I, I pretty much told her, I said, I am dead set that we are going to get this to a point where I can balance my life back out so that it works. And it's doable. It's just, you know, you have to make a decision and say, okay, we're there. Like we are no longer a startup. We're, we're I would call us kind of that post-startup phase where we've got some good cash flow. We've got some good working capital. We've got a great network of investors and deals and people and employees, you know, it's there. So it's just a matter of really making a decision to, to do it. But yeah, we, we definitely had those conversations. And I have more than one partner too. I mean, I've got other minority partners as well that are involved in the business. So yeah. But I think, you know, again, so far, I've been very thankful that the partners that I've had and have, they're really good people and they're good hearted. We have our disagreements, of course, like that's done, of course, you know, that if everybody agreed, then I don't think it'd be a very good partnership anyway. But, you know, across the last five years, I've worked with some amazing people and very thankful for them. And it's been a great experience. So when you, when you officially went off and started, Did you start with a couple of employees or was it you doing all the work? It was just me. Yeah. I did about 10 jobs for the first year. (laughs) As is the case with most founders. So what was the first position that you hired for? Uh, That's a good question. I think I hired an analyst and found out that was a waste of time. Got rid of them. I think I hired an accountant. They were too slow. Didn't know what they were doing. Got rid of them. The first few hires were not good. I mean, it was just like, it took me more time to deal with them than just to do it myself. Not a good place to be, but I know everybody's going to laugh at that. Say, yeah, 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 those founders, they're all a bunch of jerks. (laughs) But for me, the first really good hire, oh, and then I hired a couple of assistants. Good, again, all these people were good people. They just, I mean, the pace that you're moving as a founder, it's insane. I mean, 
honestly, I look back and I'm like, I have no idea how I did all that. I have absolutely no clue how I was organized enough. And I have no idea. So, but you're also, you're also the guy that took that lady's job that was taking her 50 to 60 hours a week and you were doing everything in 15 and looking for more work. So I think that that speaks to how you're wired and I got to believe that you're the kind of person, (laughs) very process oriented. You find every efficiency that you can and in the process. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's key. And I think you have to be super disciplined, prioritized. And I will say this too. I have never been challenged more in my life than I am currently today as the CEO of a, you know, call it small post startup business. Because even in the startup phases, it was all in my head. I mean, literally everything sat in my head. I basically knew where the cash was coming in, where it was going out, where it should be, what deals, numbers, everything was in my head. So to some degree, it's easier. Because you don't have to go to anybody. You don't have to ask anybody any questions. You literally just know exactly where you're at. And is now, stressful too? Like having that many thoughts going in, in your mind at one time, does that create a, a stress? Not for me. And when I'm in the zone going a million miles a minute, I love it. It's energizing. It's exciting. And I don't have to wonder. That's what I'm saying right now is unbelievably stressful because I'm wondering, do they know what they're doing? And then I dig in and I'm like, no, you don't. Okay, do they know what they're doing? And then I dig in and I'm like, no, they don't. I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> so I'm right now I'm being challenged like I've never been challenged to go from, you know, founder to CEO to, you know, having it all in my head to having a team in place that continues that growth. And that right there going from founder to CEO, that's a real thing. There are plenty of founders and owners out there that are not CEOs. Right. Have you kind of always had that mentality of or awareness that there is a distinction between the two? Or is that oh, something absolutely. that you kind of came to realize yeah. more recently? Yeah. No. And I actually, to be honest with you, I never thought of myself as being a founder because I'd worked in corporate. And I was like, man, I'm great at what they call corporate entrepreneurship, where you come into a structure it's already existing and you take it from level one to level 10. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was like right in my wheelhouse. I could do that anywhere all day long. I didn't think I was really the founder guy. And I think it was kind of just, you know, a weird set of circumstances where all of a sudden, you know, I'm sitting there doing it and it's like, okay, I guess we're doing this and here we go. <laughs> you know? But that, that was never really something that I thought I could do. In fact, same thing with raising capital, even though I'd raised that, I had put some money together this hedge fund because I had never really, I did okay, but I never really succeeded at it. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm no good at it. I'm average. And kind of goes back to being an engineering. Okay. I was bottom quartile at a top school. So I thought I was terrible at it. I actually was probably pretty decent, but you know, it's kind of in your head. So I really didn't think I could raise capital. And I was, like I said, my former partner, he was the one who's like, Hey, I need some help can you just get on the phone and start talking to these people? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, that's not really my wheelhouse. And all of a sudden I start getting on the phone and it's like, people are just writing checks and they love what I'm saying. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, that was weird. Okay. I guess there's a skill there. <laughs> right. It's just second nature to me. <laughs> right. Right. So anyways, there's, there's a lot of things that I think we put in our head. We put limits on ourselves to some degree and that's where a good mentor comes in too. And I didn't really have that. So Again, I'm very appreciative for the circumstances and the people and just everything that brought us to where we're at today. But again, 
I think corporate entrepreneurship is also very different than a CEO role. A CEO role is, you know this because you're a CEO. It's like, you're the point. You're the lead on that big, huge, whatever you want to call it behind you. It's a totally different ball game yes. being in that role. And you really have to adapt and grow into it. And it's a good challenge. I mean, I, I'm enjoying it, but it's, like I said, it's a good challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how many employees are you at today? We have about 120, 130, somewhere in that range. Most of them are on site, you know, at the properties that we own and manage. And we've got about 30, 40 people at the corporate level. We've got a 45, 50 people that are flying into Sarasota next week for our second annual leadership conference that we're going to have. So we've got a two-day, you know, get everybody together. It's get to know you. It's build rapport. It's company culture, training, learning, you name it. And so that's something that I'm really excited about. We're going to, you know, do that every year. In the post-COVID world that we are now in, are your corporate staff, are they in an office or is everybody virtual? Everybody's remote. Yeah. And we were actually remote even before that. So about four years ago, just decided, you know what, we can get rid of this office. We can save 120 grand a year. And back then, you know, it was a lot of money. Now, not as much, but you know, it was a lot of money. And it was kind of one of those things where, you know, it's like, hey, I can save an hour each way, you know, spend more time with the family. And, you know, looking back, I don't think I could have done, I don't think I could have run REM and got it to where we're at if it wouldn't have been for working remote. I mean, that was the saving grace is that I could take an hour off in the middle of the day, go downstairs, join the family for lunch, take a few hours off in the evening, you know, be there for all the meals, be there. You know, and I just couldn't have done that if I would have been in office. I would have been, you know, gone 12 hours a day. It wouldn't have worked. So yeah, we're 100% remote. And the cool thing is right now, you guys may have the same situation. I don't know, but we are now, as we're hiring for people, now being remote is this huge bonus. So, you know, a few years ago, it's like, oh, you're remote. Eh, I don't know. Now that everybody got a taste of it, oh my goodness. I mean, we're getting top-notch executives that are like, yeah, I was remote. Now I'm back in the office and I'm not happy. I'm looking at you guys. <laughs> you know? So it's actually worked out really well for us. Yeah. All right. We've just got a few minutes left. So let's do some lightning round. What's next for REM Capital? Well, we've got a lot on our plate right now. We've been doubling every 12 to 18 months. So, you know, in 2023, I think we're going to see some good opportunities. So our goal is to continue to take advantage of the opportunities, grow the company. I wouldn't be surprised in the next 12 to 18 months if we're talking, we're at a billion dollars. It just seems like everything's lined up. So that's probably what's next. But again, the big question is getting the right people in the right seats on the bus. <laughs> so that's my focus right now. And I think if we get that solved, then the rest will come along behind it because the platform is just, it's awesome and it's super exciting. What would you go back and do different? With REM or just in general? With REM. With REM, yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is, to your point, get mentorship, get coaching, get some help earlier, earlier on in the business. And it's kind of one of those things where you don't know what you don't know. And I did reach out a little bit, but I'm not very good at it. And I would definitely reach out and I would get some help. And I've even thought about doing it now. And I may, but just getting somebody to come alongside and to, you know, say, hey, here's my years of experience. I can help you with where you're at and really dig in. I think that would have been very, very beneficial because 
in some areas of the business, we're about a year behind of where we should be for personnel. And we're playing catch up and, you know, it'll be okay. We'll get through it. But we could have avoided that. And we could have avoided some stress along the way had we not taken that path. (laughs) What has been the biggest surprise in running this business? Oh, definitely the growth rate. Oh, my goodness. I thought, boy, if we got 100 million under assets, 100 million assets under management in five years, that would be amazing. And we 5X that. (laughs) That's incredible. So talk about mentorship from kind of the opposite view. If, If some young entrepreneur came to you and was saying, hey, I'm thinking about starting a business, what is the advice that you would give them? I'm on the fence. I don't know. Should I do this? Should I? Yeah. Not? Well, I'll tell you one thing I ask everybody, even investors, when I, you know, we talk to investors, I like to get to know them and their situation first and foremost. Where are you at in your life, in your personal? Where are you at? Because I think a lot of the answers to some degree should, if you really care about somebody, they should take that into consideration. Kind of going back to my situation. Hey, if you're 50 years old, kids are out of the house, you want to go start a business, totally different situation than you're 28, you just got married, and you got a kid on the way. Okay, hang on, let's think this through. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, that's, first of all, that's what I would ask them is, hey, let's talk about your personal life, where you're at, goals, past, experiences, everything. Like, let's really dive into that and understand who you are and where you're at. And then I think from there, if the answer is, yep, you're ready to go, then you kind of ask the question, okay, so... Now, what are we going to do to get the support in that business? Now, if it's real estate, I actually offered a lot of people, and some of them take me up on it, on real estate. They're smaller. you know, They own some quads, triplexes, whatever. And they'll call me up and ask me some questions. And that's one of the things that I actually enjoy with our investors. I, hey, put your IRA money with REM because obviously that's your savings. You don't want to mess with it. And if you want to go buy some stuff on your own, guess what? You just got access to me. You can set up a call. We can chat. And I have people that do that all the time and I enjoy it. It's fun. So that's kind of, that's the twofold that I would tell them. That was Robert Ritzentaylor, president and CEO of REM Capital. To learn more, visit remcapital.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 